Well, friends, please turn your attention now to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And if you are following along in your Bible, then please turn the pages of your Bible there. Mark 10, 35 to 45. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you, that will be either on page 795 or 846. This will be our text this morning. Let me start by reading it and praying for God's blessing on our time. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we thank you for these words of life that you have given us by your Spirit. We thank you for sending Jesus and for shining your glory in his face, and we plead with you that you would show us in the depths of our heart that glory. Show us the heavenly goodness of Christ, even the difficult words he speaks May they work powerfully in our lives to cut away sin, to convict us as needed, to provide comfort and encouragement, to equip us as His people to live for Him. We pray that You'd give me clear and faithful proclamation. Give us all alertness, attention, and softness of heart so that You would work Your wonderful purposes among us. For Jesus' sake, amen. What can I do for you? This is a question of service. We might hear it on the lips of a waiter or a retail associate or a customer service representative or a receptionist when we call an office. Perhaps we might even hear a professional say this to us like a doctor or an attorney when we're first meeting with them. What can I do for you? It communicates a posture of openness to hear needs and meet them. It's an invitation to share a burden and find help. Well, you may have caught that Jesus, in verse 36 of our text, asks this question. What would you like me to do for you? And he asks because he is a servant. 
kind of like a customer service representative or a physician. He is out to serve and to meet needs. But also, this is maybe more like a doctor who might ask this question. Jesus doesn't ask it in a completely open-ended way. On the one hand, he does ask to understand what others expect and want of him. But, as the text flows towards its climactic end, we see that he has a very different understanding of what they need than they do. Yes, he's a servant. And yes, he's here to meet needs. But James and John and the other ten disciples are about to find out as he asks this question. That their sense of what they need from Jesus needs drastic correction and recalibration. And so it is with us, whether explicitly in what we actually confess as our theology, or even more subtly, just in our creeping expectations. We're all prone to wanting Jesus to serve us in ways that He did not come to serve us. In ways that ultimately are not best for us. So once again, we need His Word to fix our eyes on the true reasons that He came to serve us. And that's what our text does so helpfully this morning. So here is the big question that our passage raises and answers. This is the big question that will guide everything we look at today. What do we need Jesus to do for us? What do we need Jesus to do for us? And we'll see that there are three answers to this question. What do we need Jesus to do for us? And we'll look through each of them. So the first answer is, this is in verses 35 to 42. First, we need Him to squash our selfish ambition. We need Jesus to squash our selfish ambition. Now our text begins with James and John pulling Jesus aside to ask Him a private question. They're angling for privileged positions in what they believe is His imminently coming kingdom. After all, they're marching to Jerusalem. This is Zion, the Lord's holy hill. The place that, as we heard last week from Psalm 24, verse 7, should welcome the Messiah with these words, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And so they approach Him on the way to Jerusalem and they ask, first of all, can you do whatever we ask of you? He says, well, what is it? And then they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, on a few occasions before this point in Mark, Jesus has invited three of the twelve disciples to be especially close to Him. There have been some key moments of revelation of Himself where He has drawn these three apart from the others to show them things about himself. For instance, the transfiguration in chapter 9, he went up on a mountain and showed him his unveiled glory. He selected out Peter, James, and John to follow him into these encounters. We could call these the inner ring of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. But just a few verses ago in verse 31, we saw this several weeks back, Jesus uh, subtly rebuked Peter for bragging about the depth of his sacrifice for Christ. You may recall this when he said, Jesus, we have given up everything for you. And Jesus subtly at the end of his answer, he says, the many who will be, who will, many, uh, but many who are first will be last and the last first. A little dig at Peter. Don't be bragging about how much you've given up for me. And that wasn't the first time that Peter has had his foot in his mouth. 
And it's possible now that these other two, the brothers James and John, they see that Peter has just gotten shot down and they see their opportunity to edge out Peter and secure the two most privileged and honored positions for themselves. If Jesus is about to arrive in Jerusalem and take his seat as the anointed king, this would be a strategic time, would it not, to make their bid for the choice positions, to make their strike. So, of course, they do it in a roundabout way because they know that their request is shameful and self-centered. So they first say, kind of, can we have a blanket authorization for what we ask uh, before we even ask it? And Jesus, now Jesus is exceedingly wise. But it doesn't take Solomonic wisdom. To, if someone ever says, will you give me what I ask for? To first say, hold on, what are you going to ask for? By the way, if anyone ever asks you, give me what I want, you say first, well, what do you want? And he does that. He says, well, what do you ask? What do you want me to do for you? And that's when they lay on him this request. They want the seats on the right hand and the left hand of his royal throne. These would be the two seats, of course, closest to him. And so these would be the two positions of highest influence in his government. What they're asking for ultimately is two intermingled goods, honor and power. They want honor and power. They are seeking these things from Christ. I mean, they see Jesus, the King of glory, about to enter the city of Zion. They've heard him speak earlier in in chapter 8, verse 38, of himself coming in the glory of his Father. And they saw a glimpse of that glory on the Transfiguration Mount. And now they want their cut. Isn't it so mixed with these disciples? Do they have faith in Jesus? Well, yeah. They trust that He's the Messiah. They're following Him. They're hearing from Him. They're learning from Him. You've got to commend that. I mean, they trust that He's the King. He's going to reign. But on the other hand, by this question, they show that they have somehow completely missed the point of not one, or even two, but three direct and explicit predictions that he has made about his suffering and death. We saw the last one just last week in verses 32 to 34. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to abuse me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise from the dead. He said it that plainly. It's like they have these noise-canceling headphones on that are kind of algorithmically filtering out certain things he says and letting other things through. And they're hearing all this stuff about glory, And they're not hearing any of this stuff about suffering. And just as I said last week, every one of these three passion predictions of Jesus' death and suffering, in this section, every one is followed by a corresponding block of teaching about discipleship. Given that Jesus is not only the king, but the suffering servant king. What does that mean about following him? Every time... His prediction of his suffering is followed by what does that mean about followers of Christ? And usually, that teaching is occasioned, actually in every case, it's occasioned by the disciples showing that they don't get it. Jesus will suffer and then rise. First the cross, then the crown. But these guys have crowns in their eyes and they are not hearing what he just said about the cross. It's pretty remarkable that this happens right after his prediction in verses 32 to 34. And so it leads to Jesus teaching on discipleship that really is the climactic uh, uh, iteration of this. The third time it forms really the high point of all this section of the book, chapters 8 to 10, which is dealing with this issue of given that Jesus is the Messiah, what does that mean? He will suffer. And so disciples, uh, be alert to what that means. And Jesus, once again, has some untangling to do. So he says in verse 38, 
You don't know what you're asking me. The reason that they're wrong is that they are asking for a certain destination while neglecting the route that leads to it. They uh, haven't even begun their spiritual warfare and they're already angling for a triumphal procession. They're like soldiers who have not faced a single shot fired in anger. They're already campaigning for medals and awards for themselves. So he's saying, you don't understand the implications of what you are asking for. You don't understand what this is connected to. And so then he asks in verse 38 these two questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now he refers in both cases here to his suffering using these two metaphors of a cup and a baptism. Now this idea of a cup, this image has a well-worn Old Testament history of symbolizing God's wrath. Listen to Psalm 75 verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. This is not good if you're one of these wicked people. This is God's righteous judgment against the wicked. And this, this picture appears many times in the Old Testament. So he's saying, I'm about to drink the cup. Now this message, uh, this metaphor of baptism doesn't have the same kind of uh, baggage of prior biblical usage. But it is an image of being submerged, being overwhelmed. And there is a biblical pattern of God's judgment coming in the form of drowning in mighty waters. Think of the Genesis flood. Or think of the Egyptians destroyed in the Red Sea. There is a biblical pattern that floods are God's judgment. And so Jesus is speaking of his coming suffering as an experience of divine wrath, which is rightfully stored up for the wicked, a, a judgment that will overwhelm and drown him. That is his cup. That is his baptism. So he's saying, you guys are missing the point. Are you ready to suffer and die along with me? As it goes for me, so all who follow, first the cross, then the crown. And of course, in verse 39, they say, yes, we are able. And this yes is certainly an expression of hubris and misplaced self-confidence. They do not know what they're saying yes to. Yet interestingly, Jesus affirms that it is factually true. They are right. A day is coming when these two disciples will understand Jesus' suffering and its purpose and its place in his kingdom. And the day is coming when these two will go out as his apostles, his messengers sent out with his gospel to the nations, and they will suffer persecution for the sake of his name. They're right about that. They don't really understand what that means, but he says, you're right. Nevertheless, in verse 40, even though they'll share his sufferings as his disciples, he can't promise them these privileged seats. Verse 40 is fascinating. He says, yeah, you're right. You actually will share these sufferings derivatively, not in the same sense as Christ, but in following me. But then in verse 40, nevertheless, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice it's not as though Jesus will not sit on a throne of glory. And it's not as though no one will have these privileged positions of honor and authority beside him. It's just that it's the Father who has the prerogative to choose these people. That's the implied voice of it, for those for whom it has been appointed. Now, he's not deferring to the Father because he's any lesser as the divine Son. In his eternal divine nature, he shares the unbroken essence 
and will and authority of the Godhead. But it's that in His incarnate state and taking on human flesh, He has lowered Himself to the place of submission to His Father. And so, the man Jesus Christ defers this authority to God the Father. God the Father will appoint these places of honor and authority in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Now I know what you're wondering, because I am too. Well, who are they? Who are these people? Jesus says, well, there's people that, it's, it's not you, I, I, it's not mine to say. And we go, well, who is it? But you know it's no accident that their names are withheld. It's intentional that we aren't to know. It's simply not for us to know. We, we ought not to press into mysteries God has seen fit not to reveal. But we can be sure of this. Based on what we've seen here in Mark, they won't be people who thought themselves qualified for the position. They won't be selfish ambition ladder climbers. They'll be childlike receivers of the kingdom. They'll be consummate self-humbling servants. So then after that, interaction closes with James and John. In verse 41, the scene shifts. And when the ten heard it, that's the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other ten disciples have heard this ambitious play of James and John, and they are incensed. Now, this is not a morally pure anger. This is not a personally indifferent anger uh, to the consequences of James and John's ambition. Rather, this is jealousy. They have the same ambitions residing in their own hearts, and they're just irritated at the competition. Uh, John Calvin writes, There was not one of them who would willingly yield to others, but everyone secretly cherished within himself the expectation of primacy. That is the expectation of being number one. They all wanted it. They see two of these guys trying to angle for it. So, of course, they get mad. So Jesus sees what's going on, and it's time to pull everyone together and correct them. They all need correction. All twelve are falling into the same error of attitude and expectation. So he says this in verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. They're all aware of the Gentile rulers, especially at this time the Roman Caesars, who exemplify domineering authority over their subjects. That's what the terms lord it over and exercise authority means. Jesus isn't sweeping away the legitimacy of having authority completely. It's a certain way of seeking authority and using it. It's natural for fallen humans to use authority as a tool for personal gain. To have authority over others means that they are available at my disposal for me to squeeze gain out of them. They exist to serve me. It is natural for human rulers to exploit those under them. And this explains the attitude of James and John and really all of them. They want to climb to the top, to places of honor and recognition and authority, so that they can live on the fat of these privileged positions. They want to position themselves over others so that they can gain at the expense of others. And Jesus here is about, he's about to set them straight on what a better way is. But before we look at that, as we move on to the text, consider whether we can see something of ourselves in these disciples. Within 
the church, the community of Jesus' disciples, we have ways of conferring honor. We have privileged positions. Uh, on the one hand, we have recognizes, recognized offices of authority like pastors and deacons, but even we have other softer versions of prestige we could call clout. We have certain kinds of people that others want to be. And we have certain ways of being that others aspire to imitate. So here's the question. Whose scale of values are we exhibiting by how we distribute honor and authority among us? Whose scale of values are we exhibiting? Think of positions of authority within the church or the home. Some might aspire to these positions or hold these positions motivated by a desire to benefit at the expense of others. I want others to look up to me. I want the personal fulfillment and pride of being the object of their admiration and imitation. Or, I want them to obey me. I want the power and the ease and the convenience of others being subject to my desires. But Jesus roundly rebukes this kind of thinking. It is wicked, it is disgusting, and it is destructive among the people of God. It's just like the world. It's no different than the fallen sinful world Jesus came to save us from. In 1 Peter 5.3, this is beautiful. Peter, the apostle, who humbly identifies himself to church elders as a fellow elder, there in 1 Peter 5, he warns them, I should say me, men in my position, church elders, against domineering over those in your charge. Domineering over those in your charge. That is exactly the attitude Jesus is squashing here. So, fellow church leaders, husbands who have authority over wives, parents who have authority over children, employers who have authority over workers, let me ask you, do you exist to serve them or do they exist to serve you? Now, we might think we're doing okay in terms of how we use authority, but let me turn the screw a little bit tighter. And I suspect that this will be more convicting as a test for our hearts. Kids, kids, you ever waiting in line and you're waiting for a while and somebody else comes up and crowds you, crowds in front of you. How do you feel? You don't feel good. You feel mad. You feel anger rising up inside you. How dare you? You can't do that. No, it is wrong for them to do that, no doubt. But there can be the sense of how dare you do that to me? I've been waiting here. And it's the same adults stuck in traffic. Maybe there's gridlock and there's a lane closing and someone zooms ahead of you like using the shoulder and all this so he can cut in. And you go, how dare you cut me off like that? Or even in weightier matters than lining up or traffic, how do you react to other people's ambition? We might want to pat our backs because we're not trying to be like James and John. We're not vying for authority so we can domineer others. Okay, fine. But how do you react when others do that? Do you become defensive, indignant, territorial? He cannot cut in on me like that. I deserve that recognition. How do you react when others receive honors that you think you more fitly deserve? How do you react when others vie for power and influence that you think should be yours? It's natural to fight over power and honor, even if not actively, then passively. But Jesus has a better way for us. Here he says, let me squash that for you. That's the way of the world. 
We need, first of all, then, Jesus to squash our selfish ambition. The second thing we need him to do for us is in verses 43 to 44, to set the pattern for a life of service. To set the pattern for a life of service. So we just described how the world uses authority. Then he goes on and says in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. And actually in the Greek, it's more literally, it is not so among you. That is simply contrary to the the state of things in my kingdom. He says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus has explained how the Gentile rulers operate. And the subtext of that is, guys, y'all are being just like them. In verse 43, he turns the corner and defines a drastically different alternative. Now, among you, this is important, the beginning of verse 43, among you, this is my people, my kingdom. It is a true counterculture. It is an alternative people with alternative values whose antenna are tuned to heaven's values and not earth. That's the church. Among you, it's a whole different orientation. He's saying, you are missing the nature of my kingdom and how it critiques the way the world works. Now, the way of his kingdom, it is a simple saying. It's simple, it's deep. By now, it's somewhat familiar. We heard him say again back in verse 31, that the first are last. This is a reframing of the same concept. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In the kingdom of men, greatness is defined by an uphill climb. I can't let anyone get themselves over me because then they win and I lose. So I'd better hurry up and get above them. But greatness in the kingdom of Christ is defined by a downward descent. A voluntarily downward descent. It's not that he denies that there's such a thing as greatness. It's that he redefines its essence. To be great in this world is to serve. And verse 44 simply says the same thing in more intense way when he says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The great one is the servant. Well, the greatest one is the very lowest, lowest, the slave of everyone else. A slave has even less self-determination than a household servant. It's kind of funny how you have authoritarian governments around the world and they have officials bearing titles like Minister of Defense or of Commerce or Information or what have you. And minister, you may know, simply means servant. But the way that these titles exist in some governments are nothing short of parody. They're laughable because the bearers of these offices roll around in luxury cars and they accumulate mind-boggling privileges to themselves when a great swath of their countrymen live in abject poverty. Minister of. But in Jesus' kingdom, minister isn't a joke. And I'm not just talking about uh, those who are in positions of church offices. Whether you have a, an office and a title of minister or any disciple of Christ, great ones are servants. Not just in title, but in substance. Great ones are true servants. And Jesus is not just speaking abstractly. In verse 45, we're about to see how he points to his own ministry as the premier example of the servitude that is kingdom greatness. And that's the same pattern that we see in John 13. You may recall Jesus washing the disciples' feet as a symbol of his cleansing death as a servant 
for them. And then he turns and says to them in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 13, what I've just done to you, you do that to one another. You serve as I've served you, ultimately in my death. Or as Paul vividly describes in Philippians 2 verses 4 to 8, that Jesus lowered himself into servitude by he, the eternal son of God, becoming a man. And as as if that were not low enough, he lowered himself even further to the point of death on a cross. And Paul says, this is the template for how Christians are to relate to one another. Have this mind among yourselves so that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look at how Jesus lowered himself for you. Again, Calvin writes, let the only greatness, eminence, and rank which you desire be to submit to your brethren. And let this be your primacy. Again, let this be your being number one, to be the servants of all. What ambitions animate us, brothers and sisters? What are our goals in relationship with one another? We've already heard the inappropriateness of seeking authority and honor and influence at each other's expense. True greatness among Christ's people is hustling to get beneath others, voluntarily giving up rights and privileges and preferences in order to serve our brothers and sisters for their good. Now I'm speaking among the community of saints, but this will shape all human relationships that we're involved in. This will shape our relationships in in the workplace, vocationally, or civically out in the community, or our families, as well as the local church. And I wonder, friends, whether you form ambitions around lowly acts of service. Maybe we take them up when they fall into our lap, or when we stumble upon them. But do we daydream about them? Ways that we can get beneath others and serve them. Do we aspire to them? Do we plan and form hopes around how we can serve more and more people, more and more profoundly in Jesus' name? Do we make it our earthly purpose to get as low as we can in meaningful service to others? For all of us with any sort of authority in any sphere, whether local church or family or business or public life, let's all resolve this morning that we will only and always use authority to serve. Never to extract service from others. Always to bless them. Never to bless ourselves at their expense. That's what authority is for. And despite what our fallen intuitions might tell us, this is a fruitful and bountiful life. The early church father Chrysostom encourages us, saying, God has need of nothing. Yet when he, this is the Son of God, humbled himself, he produced such great good, increased his household, and extended his kingdom. That was a very fruitful lowering of himself, wasn't it? He goes on and says, Why then are you afraid that you will become less if you humble yourself? Imagine the reach your service could other, for others could have for Jesus' sake and in His name throughout the decades of following Him during your life here on this earth. And we've already said today as a church family, our hearts are heavy at the loss of our dear brother, Smokey Nevins. But as we grieve His absence and remember Him, what a beautiful example of humble service He gave for us. Wasn't the Lord kind to put such a servant among us? 
amid his many limitations due to disability and almost constant health struggles at times, he aspired to serve. He served quietly. He served faithfully. He often served at great cost to himself, and he never sought fanfare or honor. He served many of us in private ministries of counseling and encouragement. He studied scripture and theology, and he prepared sermons relying on much more difficult accommodations than those of us who have sight. He served because he knew the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ. And he served because he was gripped by the servant's sacrifice for him and for the whole flock that he was privileged to get to help serve. I truly believe that it will be rare indeed that any of us will encounter one who endured such difficulty to serve so much. And although Jesus himself is the preeminent standard of the servitude that is greatness in God's kingdom, he is kind to implant in our midst and before our eyes lesser lights to reflect the glory of his light, his servant-hearted love. Jesus' teaching for us as a church, this should shape how we distribute honor and recognition and authority as the people of God. If the kingdom of God is a place where greatness is service, then we should be a people inclined to honoring the servants among us in a manner proportionate to their love, sacrifice, and humble devotion. Don't look up to Christian celebrities and think in your heart, those are the great ones. Maybe they are and maybe they aren't. The, the visible position is not the point. The point is the substance of their hearts. And really, those of us who are not close to them cannot see what's going on in the quiet places of their souls and their lives. And I'm not meaning to encourage us to be cynical toward more prominent Christians, but sadly, even in the Christian sphere, there often is not a very high correlation between visible publicity and greatness and that greatness that aspires to be the servant of all. It's not the outward appearance that tells a story. Look to the humble, devoted servants around us. And River City Grace, I'm grateful to say, there are some real heroes in our midst in this manner. Spot them, admire them, and strive to emulate them as they imitate Christ. So we need Jesus to squash our selfish ambition and we need Jesus to set the pattern for a life of service. The third thing we need him to do for us is in verse 45. We need him to sacrifice himself to redeem us. We need him to sacrifice himself to redeem us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus ends the text on a high point, not only a high point for these 11 verses, but for this whole middle section of Mark's gospel. This is where all the talk of suffering and the corresponding teaching on discipleship, it has all been driving to this. Again, he is the preeminent servant, the greatest example of this self-lowering greatness. And the bullseye of the target of his service is his atoning death in the place of others. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. Notice that he's speaking about why he came. The Son of Man came not, I can amplify and say, not in order to be served, but in order to serve. This is his ministry purpose statement. It's like he said back in chapter 2, verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now we fill that out a little bit more. How do you call sinners? 
He calls them to himself by freeing them from the divine wrath that they deserve through his death as a substitute. But to really see how the irony drips from these words, we'll once again zero in on this title, Son of Man. This is a familiar title in this part of Mark. He's used it many times. We've talked about it many times. It refers to Daniel's prophecy of a great ruler of the nations given authority by God in Daniel chapter 7. But check out what Daniel says in 7.14 about the Son of Man. He says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That they should serve him. It is the rightful entitlement and it is the one day inheritance for the Son of Man to be what? Served. Served by all peoples in worship and adoration and obedience. So he says, I'm the great Son of Man, the one whom all will one day serve, and I came not to be served. Not to be served. That's shocking to say that about the Son of Man. And the reason he came not to be served is that he came instead to serve. Because he's not only Daniel's son of man, but he's also the prophet Isaiah's prophesied servant of the Lord. Who is described in several passages there in Isaiah. Most prominently the one we heard read a few minutes ago in the service, Isaiah 53. This clear picture of the servant of the Lord in his suffering. The son of man who deserves to be served has come as the Lord's servant to serve. And it's not just to serve generically, but it is to serve in the most intense and sacrificial and needed way possible. To serve by giving his life up as a ransom price for God's people. Now he is specifically echoing Isaiah 53.10. We read, His soul makes an offering for guilt. Uh, Isaiah 53.12, he poured out his soul to death. The word that Jesus uses for life here is, is an unusual word for life that is often translated soul sometimes. So he's echoing Isaiah 53. And then in Isaiah 53.11, why does he do this? To make many to be accounted righteous. He's echoing these references from Isaiah 53. Honestly, the whole chapter, it's all about the servant of the Lord who comes to give his life as a substitute under divine wrath. And by paying this equivalent price for those whose sin merits this judgment, He frees us from our bondage. He frees us from our slavery. The ransom is a price of freedom. As one commentator put it, no better one sentence summary of Isaiah 53 could be offered than what Jesus says in this verse 45. So again, not the first time in this section, Jesus cites his coming death. And here he gives it the clearest interpretation that we'll see anywhere in this gospel. And at the same time, he seals his teaching on discipleship with this mic-dropping example that sheds light on all Christian service. This is the pattern. This is the template. This is the standard for all of our service. Him giving his life for us. So we might ask, how is this supposed to humble us? How does this work? Well, I found that focusing on the cross has a powerful effect of popping the bubble of my selfish ambition. 
popping the bubble of my self-aggrandizement. Because when these sins start swelling up in our hearts, what can pierce them more effectively than one good look at Jesus giving Himself for helpless slaves of sin like us? When we consider what we deserved, what honors can we claim to deserve now? Now, when we consider what price was paid for us, how can we then complain now that we're not getting our due? Uh, When we see the sinless Son of God sacrificing His body as a spotless lamb to serve us and meet our greatest need of rescue, how could our hearts remain hard and competitive and territorial against one another? It would be like someone who gets overwhelmed in financial trouble and debt and finally needs to break the glass and hit the bankruptcy button. But then later in life, he begins accumulating wealth and finding success and climbing the ladder. And he starts boasting about how he's self-made. About how no one gave him anything, but he competed and he scrapped and he rose to the top by sheer commitment and drive and genius and force of will. What would you say to that person? What would you think about that person? Uh, Dude, you went bankrupt. You were forgiven your debts. Shouldn't that fact alone be enough to pop the bubble of your pride? If you're encouraged by the example of sacrificial service that we saw Smokey exhibit among us so faithfully over the years, consider the greatest servant whose sacrifice gripped and compelled our brother. Consider the power of the gospel that secured Smokey's soul and gave him eternal hope and filled his sail with motivation to serve others. And we just sang, And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. For those of you who don't yet trust in Jesus, this is the Gospel. This is the Christian proclamation that forms the foundation of the church's existence. And it is the most essential message for you to ever hear. That Jesus Christ is God, your Creator, come in the flesh to serve and save sinful men and women by dying for us in our place. He rose again on the third day and now today promises forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who turn to Him in faith. The Bible elsewhere tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is for judgment, which is what we all face when this life is over. Don't let His righteous judgment hang over your head like that sword of Damocles and you never know when that thread is going to break and you'll fall into the overwhelming flood of eternal death. Jesus paid it all. Flee to the servant. He came to serve His Father and He came to serve us by laying down His life for sinners. Will you trust Him? What do we need Jesus to do for us? It's the same things that the original 12 disciples needed. We need Him to squash our selfish ambition. We need Him to set the pattern for a life of service. And we need Him to sacrifice Himself to redeem us. Now in the operation of our hearts, it works in reverse. We first look at the cross as the defining picture of greatness. Let Him set the standard and and provide the picture for you. And then as you look at His cross, imitate His greatness by aspiring to the low places, by lowering yourself to serve as He has served you. And in doing so, 
put to death the contrary desires of selfish ambition. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that we needed nothing short of divine rescue, the the priceless blood of the Lamb, to win away our souls, not only from slavery to sin, but to slavery under the judgment our sin deserves. And we praise you for how fully you have supplied that need in Christ. We love his servant-hearted humility, his sacrifice for us. We pray that this picture would ever be before our eyes and would motivate us from the inmost place of our hearts to desire to lower ourselves and serve others. Put to death in our lives, God, the selfish ambition that climbs. And may we be the sweet Christ-like servants who continue to serve in love. Work among us and save any who don't yet know Jesus by this picture of him crucified for sinners. We pray all this in his name. Amen.